Hello and welcome to the all-new Virgin Disruptors podcast. I'm Holly Ransom and this is episode one in a new series of talks designed to inspire, provoke and activate change in the world of business and beyond. I think disruption is one of the most exciting things that can happen in business and actually often in life. So the word disruption to me is one of great excitement. Whether you're an individual, a team, an organisation or world-changing entrepreneur, Thinking outside of the box and disrupting the norm is often the key to making a difference, getting an idea off the ground and turning it into a success. At the recent Virgin Disruptors event in London, I was lucky enough to host a day with, in my opinion, some of the most exciting and disruptive thinkers out there. Business leaders from around the world who are tirelessly striving to challenge the status quo in terms of purpose, performance, people and planet. And over the course of this series, we'll be hearing about their individual approaches, and how you can put these ideas into action yourself. Overall, for me, across the course of the day, I was blown away by how much I learned. I was taking copious notes throughout, and I went away with so much to think about and itching to try out some of the things I'd picked up, stuff I'd not heard before. But importantly, these people who were driving really disruptive changes and implementing big ideas had managed to break it down into really pragmatic action steps that me as an individual could think about how I go and apply in my business and in the projects I'm working on within my reality to drive change. Well, we've got a great discussion to kick off this series, but before I introduce our first session, I think it's only fitting that we hear some words from Virgin's own Disruptor-in-Chief. Well, hello, this is Richard Branson, and I am delighted to say I'm here at Virgin Disruptors. Well, look, I love disruptive people in Virgin companies, and I think there are too many companies that want people they feel you know, that are comfortable people to be working there. Um, it's actually the more disruptive people that often are the most creative. There was once an occasion where somebody was stealing stuff from Virgin Records many, many years ago, and you know, I called him into my office and told him he'd been caught, uh, gave him a second chance, and he went on to sign bands like the Human League Culture Club. You know, he was a disruptive person, but companies need people with um, spirit. I don't think he stole from us again and turned out to be a great employee. And I think, you know, it's often those people that get up the noses of other people that can actually be the most creative. Sir Richard Branson in conversation backstage at the Virgin Disruptors event. And in just a second, we'll be hearing more from Richard as we kick off this series with a panel discussion featuring Richard alongside a serial entrepreneur and the youngest person to float a company on the London Stock Exchange, Emma Sinclair, blockchain founder Peter Smith, the fintech disruptor behind the world's most popular Bitcoin wallet, and Solly Solomu, the man behind the youth media empire and viral content king's The Lad Bible. Now, over the course of this series, we'll be hearing more from the speakers featured at the Virgin Disruptors event individually in a collection of talks. But first, prepare yourself for some strong opinions and heated debate on entrepreneurship, innovation and disruption as we broach the event's overarching question. Are disruptors born or are they made? Sir Richard Branson, Emma Sinclair, Peter Smith, Solly Solomu and myself. This is episode one of the Virgin Disruptors podcast. Now, Richard, one of the things I, I think myself, but probably most of the world, was pretty worried about was when they saw a post recently with your near-death experience while you were out cycling. Now, I've since found out that you have had a near-death experience for every year of your life, which I find <laughs> remarkable. And I'm wondering if at any age and stage you're going to stop pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. Um, yeah, I've been lucky, um, but I don't think it'll be much fun not to push oneself outside one's comfort zone. My kids, um, a couple of months ago, said, Dad, would you like to come with us on a, something called the Strive Challenge in, in Europe? And because they were going, obviously, I said yes, and I looked, and it said Tuscany and the Alps, and it sounded very nice. You know, I didn't expect it to be so brutal. I mean, we headed off just over a month ago yesterday. And we crossed the Alps, then we did a 100-mile bike ride a day through the mountains, nearly 2,500 kilometres to uh, the south of Italy. Then we swam to Sicily. Uh, then we ran up Mount Etna, and then we climbed the, climbed the last bit of it. And, As um, everyone does, right? <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. 
Anyway, the, 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 the good thing is that my, my, for about a week, my body is now where it was when I was 28, so I'm feeling wow. as, as, fit, as fit as I've ever felt. And um, it won't last, but it's fun while it lasts. So what motivates you to keep continually doing it? I mean, have you made it a habit? Are there, is it who you surround yourself with that keeps up that propensity to just keep on pushing? Um, I, look, I've got the greatest pleasures in my life of setting myself... I suppose, seemingly impossible challenges and then trying to overcome them, you know, whether it's in business, whether it's in in not-for-profit ventures or whether it's in personal challenges. And I think the personal challenge side, you know, it's helped keep the Virgin brand fresh. You know, the head of British Airways is unlikely to be foolish enough to jump on a balloon and try to fly around the world. And therefore, British Airways has got a ring about it, its brand. It wouldn't be able to move itself into other areas, whereas, you know, Virgin's got that excitement and... Um, and I enjoy it, if the truth be known. I mean, I just love seeing what I'm capable of. That's awesome. Peter, I want to jump down to you. Uh, pushing yourself outside your comfort zone is one thing, but when it comes to that notion of disruptors, are they born or made? Where do you sit on that? I think that for me, you're either born that way or you're not. I think that for a lot of folks, it's something that they aspire to, but that ultimately it's, it's very uncomfortable. It's very hard. I think the difficulty of doing really disruptive things is something that we don't talk about very frequently um, from the other side, but it is really hard. You know, and I, I tell people, I have a lot of entrepreneurs now that are, you know, maybe raising their angel or their seed round, they sit down with me and they want to pitch me on an idea and get my thoughts. And the question I always ask them is like, how important is this idea to you? Are you ready to be, you know, totally exhausted, 30 pounds overweight and single in three years? <laughs> Because that's what success looks like. You know, when you get together like a group of 10 tech CEOs that have made the other side, and, and my firm's not successful. My firm is, you know, marginally successful at best. Um, we're very lucky to have great investors. Um, but, you know, at best case scenario, we've just been a little bit successful. We've scaled the business to a big point now and all that stuff. But even with that, even with that success, the price that you pay to get there is incredibly high. And so it either has to be an amazing idea that you're really willing to sacrifice yourself for, or secondly, uh, you have to be a little crazy. And I think it's probably both. And then eventually maybe you get to a point where you have a crazy, awesome global brand, and you can go on all these sweet adventures, and you hire an amazing CEO to run the business day to day, you know, and you become Richard Branson. <laughs> um, but the struggle to get there is, you know hugely, hugely real. And people don't spend enough time acknowledging how real that is. Emma, I'd love your thoughts on that. I mean, just to be controversial, I mean, I think you, you could argue that you, you have to be born, which you're saying, but I actually think that if you have the right mindset, you know, the people in this room who've never, you know, not born that way, they can become disruptors and they can actually shock themselves as to what they're capable of. So, uh, you know, so... I, that, so I don't want to pick yeah. Um, we've only just met and it would be really awkward. I think there are a couple of other things to add to that, which is number one, I think people sometimes confuse disruptors and innovators. And I think actually disruption and innovation is arguably something slightly different. Second of all, it's not all doom and gloom, although I entirely agree about the, the hardship and the, the labor that's required, and I certainly can provide testimony to that. But equally, sometimes there's something about naivety. If I think to myself, would I have done all of the things that I did in my 20s if I knew how hard it was going to be? I've got to be honest, I'm not sure that I would have done. But now I can do nothing else. I mean, there is nothing else I can do. I'm unemployable by anybody else. I might be, I might be shooting myself in the foot when I set out and someone here thought they were going to offer me a massive and exciting package. But, um, you know, the other thing is, is you do become a version of yourself when you take that hard route where you become more adept at challenge, more adept at... Um, at not hearing no. You know, quite often we have some things happen in our business where I think, how am I going to solve this? And there literally is no answer. And we, and, and my co-founder is kind of wired the same way as me. We just say, well, we don't know what the answer is. So we'll I, find a way. I think the flip side of that is that, and it's not all doom and gloom, because I don't want to overrepresent that part. You know, I've been incredibly fortunate to do exactly what I wanted to do for years now, working on a product that I believe is hugely important for the world that I'm, I wake up every single day at about 6.30 in the morning stoked to work on. And that's an incredible blessing in anyone's life if you have a job that you're genuinely excited about every single morning at 6.30 in the morning. And so that, that blessing is huge and beautiful and it makes all the other things worth it. I think to your it's point... Price, 
yeah, it's a huge high price. I think to your point though, everybody can be disruptive within their own within their own bounds. But I think some people are born with greater bounds and a greater tolerance for pain. And it doesn't particularly make us good people. Like I'm not, for example, a particularly good person. I'm not a <laughs> surprise. Um, I'm not like a great partner. You know, I wasn't a great partner while I was building my business to anyone that I was with in a you you know, romantic selfish, relationship. Though. You have to be selfish yeah, for sure. to build a great business. I wasn't a particularly great friend, but I was great at building a product, right? And so just because your bounds are further doesn't make you a special person. None of us are special people. So, well, maybe some of us are. I'm not. <laughs> what it does mean is that there's one thing that we're comfortable pushing the bounds on really far. Solly, can I ask a question of you here? Because I know we were talking this morning about the fact that you're hiring young people straight out of school now. In fact, you've got two 16-year-olds that are doing a full-time internship for 12 months in your business. Are you picking these incredible born disruptors or do you believe that part of what you're doing in your business is actually making a generation of disruptors? Yeah, so I sort of sit in the middle of the argument here, which is I think, um, I think people are born with it, um, but no one really knows that it's, it, it could be deep down inside of you. So, um, you know, there could be many, many sort of entrepreneurs in the world that just haven't necessarily discovered mm -hmm. or had the experiences in life that it brings it out. So, yeah, so we recently brought on these young 16-year-olds, which it was an interesting um, experience, to say the least. These two young kids created Instagram followings of over 2 million people whilst they're doing their GCSEs. They were telling me stories of how they'd be going to PE and sort of posting just before they, they go out and do their lessons and stuff like that. Um, we had to bring their parents in to obviously encourage them to, to sort of move city. So these guys were literally sort of moving away from home and moving city. Um, but, I mean, the, the sort of potential that's inside of these young kids who have sort of off their own back created these accounts already. They're entrepreneurs at heart, but they probably don't even know it yet. I know when I was 16, 15, I, I didn't know that I was going to go and run my own business. So um, I think we have to get it out of people. So I think it can be born, but it's not like, you know, those two people over there are entrepreneurs. You know, they, there's much more entrepreneurial people out there that we don't even recognise. It just needs to be brought out. Richard, I've been intrigued for your perspective because I know kind of we've had a, a bit of almost a lonely journey painted down the one end. And I know part of the entrepreneurship piece for you has very much been creating that culture, the bringing your family into the journey as well. How important for you is who you surround yourself with on these sorts of disruptive journeys? How much does that matter? It's incredibly important. I mean, I, I noticed one thing you said was, you know, you've got the time to go off and strive for a month. And I found the time to do that in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s, when I was building the businesses. And I think one thing I learned very early on was to surround myself with people better than me in every aspect of Virgin. And myself out of business as quickly as possible so you know my mind never stops it's an idea a minute and because of my screw it let's do it philosophy we're keeping on planting more acorns as we're going along but I will get in there for maybe a couple of months get the acorn just going but then I will find a team I will then retreat you know in those days I would retreat back to my houseboat spend time with my family spend time looking after myself you know spend time having a life and diving in if there were problems diving in if the company needed a bit of a push here or there but making sure that the day-to-day -day running was always done by somebody else and I think that's really important for people in this room who are building businesses too many people cling on they feel that they're the only people who can do it if they're not around this business is going to disappear it's just not true if they find you know if they can find if they can spend the time to find the right people um, uh, that, you know they, they'll suddenly find that you know that that's freed them up to do incredible other things as well and you definitely can get there like in my case I was forced to take about uh, eight weeks off this summer and you know, came back and the business was doing maybe better than when I left, which was very humbling. Talk about being made redundant. I came back from being in California for two months and uh, they'd taken my desk. <laughs> I was like, shit. Um, but that happens over time, right? And so it took two, three years to hire an amazing executive team. One of those people is here today. She's frankly about twice as talented as I am and would do a better job of being CEO than I would. And so you can get there 
and maybe you know you can get there in six months. It took me two and a half years to get there. You know, I now work in the, our offices two and a half days a week, right? And so when I came back from leave, I was like, let's let's dial it back. Let's have more creative time, more more free thinking time. So you can get there. It just takes time. Well, you've, I mean, two and a half years is not a lot of time. So you've done you've you've done exactly what I'm suggesting, and. You have to tell me how to do the six-month plan. Um, <laughs> yeah, me too. I well, want that one. <laughs> once you've done the first time at two and a half years, your next company, you can do it in six months. But, um, but, um, but a lot of people, you know, they just they, they never get there. You know, they, they, they just cling on for year after year after year. I mean, just by you going away to Africa, if you're not in the building, somebody else becomes the person that people come to with all the niggly problems in the building, and they'll get dealt with. And so sometimes it's quite a good idea to almost withdraw from the building completely and you know, let, let somebody else be the person who's <laughs> taking yeah. all the burden of those problems. You've got to let someone else problems. shine also. You've got to give people responsibility, yeah. but you've also got to give yourself the time to, to be able to think, you know, some mental space. So, Richard, to your point around growing the acorn, what are the really important things, and I'm intrigued for all the panel's views on this, because you're all very much at various stages of your own journey in disrupting. What is so important about how that disruptive idea starts that allows it to get the fuel that turns it into something? What's really important at that early stage, do you think? We started Virgin Atlantic, for instance, with um, one secondhand 747. Um, and we were up against British Airways with 400 planes and Pan Am with 400 planes and TWA with 400 planes. And, you know, nobody thought we could survive. And so, you know, we just had to make sure that what went on in that 747 was so good and such fun that word of mouth would get out there and Virgin Atlantic would survive. And, you know, so we innovated in, you know, we, we brought in a whole lot of people who had had nothing to do with the airline business to um, come up with fresh ideas. And, you know, our cabin crew, 95% had never worked on another airline. They got trained from scratch, so they came in excited with fresh approach. Our captains and our pilots, I think we let them have a bit of experience. <laughs> Probably a good idea. Um, and, the en- and the engineers under the plane. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it, I mean, so we introduced, you know, stand-up bars on our planes. We introduced um, seatback videos that nobody else had done anywhere in the world. We, we did fun things like, you know, with these lovely um, pepper pots and salt pots and they kept on getting stolen, so we, we just put stolen from Virgin Atlantic under them, and they became a great, great, a great um, advert for Virgin. And then we did fun things in our marketing against British Airways. You know, we kept on pulling their tail, and uh, occasionally they would come around and bite us, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And from one plane, you know, we, we went on two planes, three planes, and so on. And so, you know, the key is just make sure that, you know, if you're going to take on a big guy, that your quality is a hell of a lot better than them so that when they try to launch dirty tricks against you, the public stick with you. Nice. Solly, what about you? Early stage momentum, what's key? I think hungry people. I think if you give people a license to fail as well as succeed and give them the space to do that, I think that can create disruption. So one of my sort of fondest experiences in that is I brought some people on to run the Sport Bible which was mainly a sort of Twitter audience for us that led to the website and so on and so on. And these guys came on and they'd all created their own large accounts and audiences and stuff like that. Um, And I said to them, don't start an account on Facebook because we want to hedge our bets and hedge the risk. Um, Anyway, a week later, they started the page on Facebook without me even knowing. And then within a month of that, I think the audience was at a million people. So, you know, sort of giving people that space, having hungry people who have ideas and giving them a license to do that, I think is so important. And I sort of bit my lip. I was partly annoyed that they'd gone against me, but at the same time, they created this huge audience and I thought that was amazing. So sort of that was one of my biggest learning experiences from it is giving people enough space to come up with ideas. And you're not always necessarily right as the business leader. Um, be proven wrong. Why not? So that's probably the biggest thing for me. I think a hybrid of two things. One is work ethic, which you uh, mentioned about perseverance. You know, I started my working life in McDonald's at 16 and I've been working ever since. And I think that gave me the persistence to just stick with it and do whatever job I needed to do. You know, whether I was like in charge of washing up in the kitchen of our first office or actually running the business. The second thing is I very much believe in a cell design build model. You know, 
people give it different names, but I think it's really important to check that there's a market that will pay for your product before you start spending a lot of time on whatever it is you're thinking of building. Um, so I do very much believe in going out and talking to real potential customers. And effectively, you know, in my current business, we did that. We went out and spoke to CEOs. We talked about what we had built, were building, which in truth we were sort of building and would be building. But what we really understood was what people would pay for, how much they'd pay for it, and, and why they might want it so we could tailor it. So I think that that is really important. Don't spend a year in a dark room or in your garage thinking about your idea and constantly, constantly iterating it until you think it's perfect. I think the most important thing is talking to the people that will actually buy your product because without them, you know, it doesn't matter how great your idea is. If it's the best kept secret, then what was the point? Peter, any thoughts? Are you going to say the opposite now? No, no, no. Shaking your head. No, so actually shaking my head in agreement. Uh, I can agree, I'm capable. No, so I think. Two things are important. One, don't spend a lot of money. So, you know, you're talking about starting with one plane, not 10 planes. I see a lot of people starting businesses and are deploying capital way too quickly. We're up at about 20 people when we raise capital. Um, and we, you know, sort of stayed alive a long time on revenue, booked revenue very early. And the key to doing that is to spend no money, which I can't emphasize enough. The second thing is get your product into the hands of people as quickly as possible. And so I hear a lot of startups now that are like, oh, we're in stealth, or we're in beta, or we're you know, iterating on our whatever. Like, don't do that shit. Just like, no, fuck that. Ship your product as quickly as possible and find out that it's terrible, and then start improving as quickly as possible. Um, one of my co-founders is a great saying. He says, you know, if your code doesn't embarrass you, you waited to ship too long. So like, you need to be a little embarrassed. You know, really? You got to be embarrassed when you ship stuff um, and get it in the hands of real people as fast as possible while spending as little money as possible. I'd say that's, that's the secret. Emma, I want to loop back to something you referenced earlier, but I want you to expand on it. You, you made the comment that there's a difference between disruptors and innovators. So is, for you, is disruptors a bullshit term? Has it just become a buzzword or is it just that it's different to what innovators are? Uh, it's definitely not a bullshit term. I see we're going with really high-level English here. Um, yeah, no, just calling a spade a spade. It's not a bullshit term. It definitely, you know, it definitely says what it does on the tin. The only people that think disruption are bullshit are probably people who also think climate change is a hoax. So, no, I'm good with that. But, yeah, I do think that you can mesh disruption and innovation a little bit. I mean, without getting into theory... You know, disruption is often a label put on practically everything. In theory, and I'm waiting for someone to debate with me, disruption is creating new consumers from something that, where there wasn't really a market beforehand, which is why some oh, people... Oh, no, I don't think so. Do not. No, I knew we were going to debate. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be an argument before we leave here, and there's going to be swear words flying. But from, from my perspective, I would say that I do think innovation and disruption is slightly different yep. because you can do something better. It doesn't necessarily mean you're incredibly innovative. You can you know, build a great and successful business off the back of innovating something slightly disrupting for me is a little bit of a stronger word. Hit me with it. Let's debate. What do you got? Yeah, so, what do you got? I was trying to disrupt um, the panel. I, I know. <laughs> I'm going to pull my sleeves up. I mean, I thought this was a panel. We're going to be arm fight, wrestling by the end of this one down the end. So, first of all, apologies for my language. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell your mum. She's not going to be happy. She watches this stuff. I bet. Um, secondly, uh, so if I'll Trump, give a... If Trump gets into power, maybe you'll give your I'll country give back, to, back to us Brits and then yeah. we can get a proper, proper speak proper. Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so many great things coming out of today's panel. Right? I know. Uh, so, anyways, um, serious things. So, disruption definitely is a bullshit term, but it's still meaningful. Like... I wear so socks with ducks on them. That's kind of bullshit. Like, why don't I just wear black socks? Well, I enjoy these duck socks. And so even if something is total nonsense, though. it's not it's meaningful. Not meaningful per se, it's, but it's meaningful nice. because people attach meaning to it. Like, I attach meaning to my duck socks. I think they're lucky. Disruption, same thing. People attach meaning to that term, and so that's what gives it weight. But I'll give two examples. Innovation is building something very new. So, like, I have a friend that does biotech research. They're working on a pill that cures a specific type of cancer. There's no pill in the world that cures this kind of cancer right now. They're really close to pulling it off. That is pure innovation. They're not taking anybody else's market. Uh, my business takes market share from other people. It certainly creates new markets because we can extend services to people that can't be served currently by the current financial system, but we take market share from the banks. 
right? Virgin money is another good example. That's not really innovation. There are innovative aspects to it, but it's really disruption because you're taking from an incumbent. So I'd say when you're disrupting, you're coming into the market in a big way, blowing it up, and reordering that market. With innovation, and you can have disruption and innovation at the same time, innovation can exist purely separately by itself as just creating whole new markets, whole new business models. So like FinTech, by nature, has to be disruptive. Whereas, because we already have financial markets. Whereas, for example, AR is purely innovative. Well, I don't know, I guess you can argue that it's disrupting the film industry. All right, fuck it, that's all I got. <laughs> I think he's just gonna monologue, basically. <laughs> this, man, this man is uh, disrupting, innovating, gonna knock the Daily Mail out of Great Britain one day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Give, him round, give him a round of applause. <laughs> Um, it reminded me um, when I was a bit younger than you, when I was 16 or 17, starting a business which was not that dissimilar, but it was aimed, aimed at young people, run by young people, a magazine, and we didn't have the internet then. And we had to think of uh, innovative ways of getting young people to go and to war zones and other places to um, report. And the Vietnamese war was going on in those days. So there was a 16-year-old journalist called Julian... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Onion. It wasn't really a journalist in those days, but he was a 16-year-old. And he wanted to go to Vietnam on our forest. So we went to the Daily Mirror and said, um, we're sending this journalist to Vietnam. But we thought he could also work for you a little bit on the side, and you could pay for his salary, and you could pay for his tickets. And they agreed. So you know, we managed to get our, our war correspondence set, put around the world thanks to these newspapers. Yeah, I'm going to have to uh, take a note on that. I'll have to get <laughs> some of them to stop paying my stuff. Um, yeah, it's good. I, I, think it's I don't think the, mail, the Daily Mail will, but no. maybe the Mirror. We'll get the other ones. But I mean, I'm, on, on the innovation and the uh, disruption thing, again, I'm going to sit in the middle. Um, <laughs> We're not so, really on opposing sides. Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I think you should be sat there and I should be sat there. Okay. Like you said, I think when you are disrupting something, you're making change, you're coming into a market that's already established and so on and so on. But the principles in which you do that are quite often innovating. So you're innovating in a new way, whether you're marketing, whether you're doing something different technically. You know, the two, I think, come hand in hand yeah. and sort of lead to the point of change. And, you know, I think in the media world itself, I think in the whole lifespan of newspapers, you know, you, you're seeing platforms such as Facebook, Google, Snapchat, all these new people. They're almost changing every single day and probably have changed the same amount in one day that the newspaper media model probably changed in a whole sort of lifespan of it. And, you know, these platforms have come and disrupted and innovated models in which people used to consume media. So I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. I think the thing that's important for everybody here, and, and the point that probably resonates with everybody on the panel, is that we started very small and very agile. And what we did was we shook something up um, whether it was a very large airline, a very large newspaper, you know, the financial industry, um, for us, the software industry. So I think we have that in common, and I think that's the important thing for everyone today, which is it doesn't matter if you feel like you're facing Goliath, if you, if you do something fantastic. Um, you know, if you build something, if you design something, if you create some content that is engaging or smart or makes your business run better or more efficiently, then people want to buy that. And, you know, you can start small and scale, and I think... There's a few examples of that, and in particular, obviously, Richard today. You're listening to the Virgin Disruptors podcast with me, Holly Ransom, and we're getting stuck into a heated debate on the subject of what it means to be a disruptor. I found it really interesting here in particular, the conversation we had around the difference between disruptors and innovators, and whether or not disruption is a buzzword or whether there's substance to it. I think all of our panel, regardless of their divergent opinions, was fundamental in their belief around the importance of purpose being an overarching motivator and for all of them being the reason they get out of bed in the morning and go about doing what they're doing. Don't forget you can find out more about Virgin Disruptors at virgin.com.
and you can join the discussion on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Virgin Disruptors. But for now, let's head back to the auditorium with Richard Branson, Emma Sinclair, Peter Smith and Solly Solomon. We've just started skirting on an interesting issue. The reference was made there to driving change, to doing things differently, to adding value. This piece around purpose and disruption, mutually exclusive, coexist. What are the, I have a feeling we're going to have divergent views down the end again on this one. But what do you think? Does it have to be... Do they have to coexist? Can they be separate? And what is the most valuable disruption if they are different? So I think it depends what you're trying to do and who you are as a person. So the number one way to make money in tech, and write this down, <laughs> is um, to build something that some other large customer could use very easily. So I'll give you an example. Build a front-end banking application that is basically a much better app for banking than HSBC or Barclays has. Why? Because as soon as you get a little bit of traction, maybe raise three or four million quid, they'll acquire you for 80 million pounds. And because you've taken so little dilution, you as a founder will clear 50 to 60 million pounds after tax 40 million pounds, which is enough to have a very happy life. You can do that in the space of 18 months. You don't need to have a lot of purpose other than just making money there. For me, though, I've never been capable of doing that, probably because I'm not commercial enough. And so for me, I really need a purpose. So the reason that I work on my business today, which is different from ones I've worked on in the past, is not because I'm excited about making money. I haven't really made any money on my business. What I'm excited about is changing the world, which sounds really, really fucking, uh, you know, very, very cliche. Yeah, it sounds very cliche. It doesn't. But be proud of it. It's a great ambition. But you, for me, I need that purpose, right? But if you're building a business that truly has some shot at changing the world, you're doing something insane. You're doing the impossible. You're like climbing K2 unsupported with no oxygen. And so you're probably going to fail. Like I'm probably going to fail at what I'm doing. But you do it anyway because you have to do it. And I think that's purpose and disruption. But certainly just doing disruption is a way better way to make money. Can I ask you, if you were to encapsulate what your purpose is, how would you describe yeah, the, the game-changing sure. vision for the world? Yeah, so I want to make it as easy for people to do business with each other. And to do business with each other, you have to be able to transmit value, to transmit money. I want to make it as easy to do that as it is to communicate today. And so today we can WhatsApp message anybody in the world instantly for free, and we can communicate with anybody in the world. And I'm just old enough to remember when that wasn't possible. So I'm pre-smartphones. I'm older than I look. Uh, and then, but today we can't economically interact with people at that level of ease. Like if I want to send my friend in Vietnam money, it's days, it's expensive, it's terrible. So I think that's where I want to, I want to move the needle to. And I'm super passionate and excited about doing it. I mean, blockchain's also working um, with Ananda de Soto. Is, is, is that something you're involved yeah, with? Yeah, I, I, mean, that, I mean, that's... To me, sounds really exciting. This, the, yeah, the, and so it's this idea of not just money, but of digitizing all value at an incredibly cost-efficient basis. So whether that's actual currency, whether that's a commodity, whether that's land, whether that's offering uh, insurance projects, hedging products powered by smart contracts and payment channel technologies, like the technology we're working on is the first legitimate chance in 50, 60 years, literally since Bretton Woods, to rewrite the entire financial system and the way that we provide financial products to the world, and that is deeply fucking exciting. Let, let, me, let, me, just, let, let, let me give you one, one little thing that excited me about blockchain the most, and, and this is actually very much Hernando de Soto's um, baby, and, and that is, if you take somewhere like Egypt, 90% of people, they've got houses, they've got a garden, but they've got no uh, piece of paper to show ownership of that house or that garden. And without ownership of your property, it's almost impossible to start a business or you know, get a bank loan or, or, or anything. So he's trying to get governments to use blockchain to register every single piece of land. And you know, he's been working hard on Egypt and other countries. And, and, and that will, I think, that could create a, a real revolution, economic revolution in these countries that, that are stagnating. And, and I think that could, could be holding them back more than anything. But. Yeah, and, and there's two ways that it's really interesting. One is that most of these countries' land rights are really problematic because basically people have their land confiscated from them 
uh, by local government officials constantly. So like in Indonesia, this is a huge problem, uh, which is country, another country that's working on this kind of stuff. And so it can bring a ton of transparency and frankly honesty to what people own and wear. But what it's really powerful and kind of what you were getting at is that capitalism only works because we can borrow money, right? And you can only borrow money if you have collateral. And you can only collateralize assets if ownership is clearly identified. And so really, what digitizing access is all about, what you know, sort of bringing the rest of the world into the digital financial era, is it's about giving them a shot at capitalism. Mm. And for me, like, I'm an unashamed you know, capitalist. I think it's the best system, the best shitty system for making the world a better place. And so, you know, for me, the effects of what we're doing are going to be huge on the world if we're successful and bringing it all the way back. That's what justifies all of the effort, all of the struggle is the incredibly real chance of doing something in our world. Well, good luck with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's phenomenal. Solly, I'm intrigued to talk to you on this one because I know you've built your business now to the second largest content provider in the UK, which is remarkable. And you just launched a really interesting program, You OK Mate. So you're starting to really look at the, the purpose that you can leverage the incredible platform you built for. Where do you sit on this purpose and disruption piece? So I think uh, purpose for me fuels disruption. So when I started the business, um, my only intention and purpose was to not have to go and work for someone. Um, and, you know, off the back of that, um, that purpose, obviously the disruption came. I didn't intend to, uh, for it to be this big uh, or this magnitude, but um, it didn't. It happened. I guess the next purpose for us is becoming, you know, the biggest influential youth media company in the world. And one of the campaigns, as, as you rightly talked about, is You OK, Mate? Um, so male depression is one of the biggest killers amongst under 50-year-olds, definitely in the UK. I'm not so sure across the world. But we wanted to use our influence and our audience to encourage young males to speak out about male depression and make it more acceptable to uh, speak to your friends, speak openly about it on social media networks and, and just make it much more acceptable because, you know, having friends that have suffered from this, it's almost, you know, it's almost hidden inside. You, you almost you feel ashamed to, to share this. And we've currently, in our first week of the campaign, we've done a four-part documentary series. I think the, the first one was with Lou Smith, the gymnast. And we reached 14.8 million people in the first week. Uh, and I think that video was watched by 4.8 million people. And just the amount of comments, the amount of engagement and the amount of influence that it's had on people coming out. And you, you see on the comments, I've suffered from depression for X amount of years. We need to speak about it more. It's in there. It just needs to be helped out. And we want to help with issues such as, such as that and sort of bring those out people and have that positive influence on young people. Phenomenal. That's great. What amazing work. I think that's remarkable. Well done. Emma, what about you? Can anybody imagine the Daily Mail doing something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to count the number of digs. I think we're at two. <laughs> so if we can get one more in before we're done. Emma, what do you think? So maybe I can provide a, a slightly de sort of different spin. Um, one of the things that my life has given me, which was, you know, I floated the company at 29, I'm now in my third business. I was very fortunate I launched the Wonder Woman column for The Telegraph. I'm UNICEF's first business advisor. And one of the things that business has therefore given me is a platform and a voice. So I also wholeheartedly am behind the shitty version of capitalism, which best presents itself right now. Um, and I really have seen from my trips around Africa that entrepreneurship does change the world because there is actually no alternative. So for me, um, you know, purpose, I don't think, first of all, that a business specifically has to have a purpose. Um, what I think is really important is that its leaders have a purpose. So for my part, you know, there are, there are lots of different answers I could give you about some of the things I do in my day job. But what I've definitely been able to do is have an amplified voice because I'm fortunate that people ask me to participate in things where I get to say something where perhaps it has a small impact on people or it makes somebody think or I make an epic connection that I know that I can leverage and, and do something with that makes something happen. I really believe in paying it forward every day and doing a random act of kindness every day. That's something I try and teach everybody that works for me. That may also sound a bit world peace, miscongeniality sort of thing, but I love miscongeniality anyway, so it's fine. As well as Legally Blonde, you know, Elwood's is my business icon. 
Um, but um, it's a bit true, actually. And um, so, yeah, I do try and teach everybody that comes my way. And the other thing that you know, capitalism and business provides us with is resource. And that's not just um, money, that's time and influence and access. So there are things that you can do in your everyday life that, that have, um, you know, for my part, one of the things I'm doing at the moment is I have a, a sort of self-contained spare room top floor. And um, there's a very small charity that's just set up to try and um, provide emergency accommodation for refugees and asylum seekers. So at the moment, I have, um, I have a very lovely 17-year-old um, living with me until we can find him better accommodation. And until people like blockchain, you're working on these sorts of things, can credentialize where he came from and, and what he should be allowed to have and if he really who he is. So we can all use our power in different ways. And I think, therefore, that it doesn't just have to be that your business is necessarily changing mm. the world. It could be that maybe you do. And the common theme, I feel, amongst most of the amazing entrepreneurs I've met is everybody um, really is, is quite sure that they can do something to change the world, make it better. And, you know, that's, that's also probably a partially a personality thing yeah. that you referred to earlier. So you can have purpose in different ways. What do you think, Richard? How important has purpose been for you individually, but also within the Virgin Group and everything you've done? Um, I think it's very, very, very important. I mean, obviously, your, your business itself is changing the world. So, you know, each people in this room have got a business. They, they wouldn't be successful unless it was making a positive difference, otherwise it wouldn't survive. But the moment you get yourself into a position you know, of wealth, and we're talking about capitalism not being perfect, if you've got the wealth, you've got wealth that you don't really deserve for the amount of effort you've put in. Uh, and therefore, enormous responsibility comes with that wealth to get out there and help tackle the problems of this world. And if we can get every single business in this world to take that attitude, we can get on top of almost every problem in this world. I mean, you know, through the business themselves, but through coming up with entrepreneurial, innovative, disruptive ways of looking at different problems in the world and, and getting out there and tackling them. Um, and then if you, if you do end up becoming a public figure, then you need to, you know, use that status to try to campaign on some of the awful iniquities of the world. I mean, I'm going you know, t tonight to America to try to campaign on getting rid of the death penalty. There's a, a vote coming up next month in California. I mean, business people cannot just sort of sit back and not speak out on issues like this. Um, Uganda, you know, there's they, life in prison if you're a gay person. Uh, life in prison if you don't report a gay person. Business people cannot do business in a country like that if it behaves so abysmally. We've got to, you know, use our influence to speak out and try to bring some decency um, to countries and obviously you know in our own countries there are things we should speak out about and and even if it adversely affects our business and can so you, can you I pick th trump up yeah. when you're there and stick him in the philippines or somewhere where what, and, slip and, slip and slip him some dope slip. or something yeah, Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a good resolution <laughs> Uh, and one of the things I would say that you've been incredibly good at over the course of your career is, is getting others engaged with your purpose and being able to, to share that, that passion and get people on board to create enormous butterfly effects, enormous ripple effects of change. What do you think is really important to, to going about doing that? How do you get people to support the ideas you're out championing? Well, I mean, you have to come up with an idea, just like you know, in business, but you have to come up with a, an idea that can make a radical difference in the world that other people can believe in. And from that experience, you know, we've set up the Oceanic Elders, the Carbon War Room, the B Team, a number of disruptive organizations to tackle some of the bigger problems of this world. Um, and then as business leaders, you can also, you know, I'm involved in something called the Global Drug Commission. I mean, you know, we, we can see, I think, as, as entrepreneurs and business leaders, situations that are palpably wrong. I mean, like the way politicians treat drugs in Britain, in most countries in the world, in America, filling their prisons up with people who, um, um, who take drugs. It's obviously not the way to deal with the problem. The, the, the way to deal with the problem is to treat drugs as a health problem, um, to help people who've got drug problems, um, and to, in time, wean, you know, wean them off their addictions. And you know, as business people, we can go and look at, you know, examples of countries where it's worked, like Portugal, where they, they had a massive heroin problem, they got over the problem, 
Um, they reduced the amount of people taking heroin by 90% by the government helping those people and not, and not imprisoning them. Right. Now, we're running to really short time schedule today, so we're going to have to wrap this in one second, but I just want to run through the panel and give you any last shot for a quick parting remark, a call to action, a takeaway you want to throw to our tribe of disruptors this morning. Pete, I'll kick off with you. You know, it's great to be focused on your work. It's great to be focused on building a product that's awesome, that does better for the world. Don't forget to be the best version of yourself. It's something that I struggle with, and it's something that I'm probably more focused on working on now than I've ever been, which is how do you be the best version of yourself, not just at work, not just building product, but in your personal life? How are you the best possible friend? How are you making the best impact in terms of volunteering work? How are you the best possible partner you can be if you have a partner? Focus on being the best version of yourself, and the rest will fall in line. The last piece of advice I'll leave you with is uh, one of my favorite quotes. It's from Amelia Boone. She's the most formidable um, long-distance and obstacle course racer in the world for men and women. So she's a woman that beats all the men at long-distance racing and obstacle course running. Incredible character. Uh, and her favorite quote is, no one owes you anything. And that's 100% true about entrepreneurship. It's 100% true about life. No one owes you anything. Get out there and get it for yourself. Love it. Em, any quick final thoughts? Yeah, feel free. Absolutely. I suppose anything around the concept of paying it forward and random acts of kindness, it ties into something that my father taught me when I was very young. And my father was very influential and still is very influential on in everything I do. And he always said, be kind to people on your way up because you don't need them on your way down. Mm. And I've had plenty of challenges and bad days in business. I mean, you know, we've um, all had interesting journeys. What we haven't talked about is the bad days, the sad days, the, you know, the, the days when it was an absolute disaster. And there have been people who have really um, have been exactly what I needed, exactly mm. when I needed it. And I think that was a result of the relationships I built and the things that I did. It costs you nothing to do something nice for other people. So whilst it, no one owes you anything, 100%, it also costs you nothing to do something nice for somebody else. And that, I think the, um, you know, and I don't have a quote for you, but, but there's a, you know, lots of books uh, about networking and, and all the sorts of things that everyone thinks are really important. I think the most important thing is find your tribe. You know, I know who my tribe are. My, my closest friends, people that are building businesses or just have the same ethics and ethos and I do. Find your tribe because those are the people that will take you with them. Awesome. <laughs> Solly, what about you? Final thoughts? Probably my final thoughts is what, what's helped me um, be able to disrupt to the level that I have. And what I felt that was was the team around me. So the people that have been surrounded around me both sort of as advisors but also that team that's within the company you know, they've disrupted me on multiple, multiple different times. And if you have a good set of people around you and you allow them, you give them a license to, to have a go, I think that's the difference. That's, that's made the biggest difference for me. So that's probably one of the most important things for me. Great. And Richard, to round us out. I'm going to uh, delegate this one. Um, first of all, I just want to thank the panel because they've been fantastic. And can you give them a round of applause? <laughs> But um, I, heard, I heard you speak in Australia, and you speak beautifully, and, you, and you've just been you. asking questions. So I'd like you to, if you could have the final word on this, that'd oh, be great. Geez. Oh, jeez. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think my biggest bit of advice is to start before you're ready, which sounds absolutely counterintuitive, but the, the observation I would make working with a lot of companies in, in change enablement around the world and elite sporting organisations and governments, is we continually wait for the perfect set of conditions to disrupt or to drive change or for things to really stack up in exactly the way that we want to. And I firmly believe that we're waiting for a mirage, a mirage of readiness, that state that we, ex we just hope will come but actually doesn't really exist. So I think for those of you who are sitting there going, you know, whatever the hurdles are or the things that you're saying, oh, I've got to wait till I've got X experience or we can only do it if it's this big or I've got to finish my degree first or I need to do whatever it is. Challenge yourself to go, how do I start before I'm ready? And to the points the panellists have made today, it doesn't have to be huge to begin with. Start small, engage with your customers as quickly as you can, iterate, build, be focused on your purpose and passion, but challenge yourself to start before you're ready and get going. That would be my best advice. Thanks.
You've been listening to the Virgin Disruptors podcast and a panel with Richard Branson, Emma Sinclair of Enterprise Jungle, Peter Smith of Blockchain and Solly Solomu of The Lad Bible. I think there was a healthy amount of disagreement and divergence of opinion in that panel discussion. I particularly enjoyed the conversation around the difference between innovators and disruptors and as well the healthy disagreement and debate on whether or not disruptors are born or made. The thing I did love across all of these entrepreneurs and all of these disruptors was their healthy appetite for getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and putting themselves outside of their comfort zone. Their preparedness to share so generously with how they'd gone about navigating, building their own businesses and driving the impact they've achieved. And the strong purpose focus each and every one of them had behind the reason they were disrupting. Their businesses, their ideas, their impact was built on a belief that they could fundamentally change the world for the better. And that was the responsibility in each and every single person. Coming up next time, we have the first of our individual talks on disruption, starting with Microsoft's head of growth ventures, Matt Wolliott. Matt believes if we want to truly drive change, we need to have a deeper understanding of the behavioural pressures that inhibit us. One focus of his work has been to do with addressing the gender gap. And through his work with Get Raised, he's helped women across the world make disruptive moves to get pay raises totalling over $2.3 billion. As a little preview, I'll leave you with a little clip from an interview with him as we close the show. Remember, if you want to know more about Virgin Disruptors, just head to virgin.com, where you can also find more entrepreneurial articles, tips and podcasts, including the Voom podcast, featuring the stories of company founders ranging from Shazam to Spanx. The Virgin Disruptors podcast is a PixU production. I'll see you in two weeks' time for episode two. From me, Holly Ransom, goodbye. And I'll leave you with Matt Wolliott. Um, are there times that being disruptive has backfired for me? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have, I have a very difficult personality. I'm not always good with people. I'm, I often challenge the status quo. Well, the first time I get a boss, I always, you know, one of the first things I say to them is, hey, I recognize that working with me is difficult. I hope you work with me on how to, like, make that an appropriate kind of disruption for you. And I think that's really the focus. I mean, I, I am a big, you know, I grew up in a, in a rural community. And, you know, rural communities often have this notion of not rocking the boat. I'm a little bit of a boat rocker, but I but I picked up these values of doing it in a way that tries not to inconvenience other people. I hate people that, you know, it's like the guy at the, the front of the line in Starbucks that is being incredibly annoying and holding everybody up. Like, I'm very community-minded in that way. And so, you know, where I could be, I'm challenging to individuals, but hopefully supportive of the community. And so, you know, that has its various mix. And I'm, by and large, comfortable with the penalties that I've paid for being a disruptor. I could make more money. I could have higher status, I could whatever, by being more likely to go along with things. And I'm okay with who I am as a person and with the sort of results of that, of that activity.